Welcome to episode 187, Mitigating Trauma in Indigiqueer People, Deepening Identity Through Psychedelic Assisted Therapy, featuring Marka Cassidy, Licensed Marriage and Family Therapist. Make sure to subscribe to be alerted about future episodes by Clearly Clinical. Learn, grow, shine. Hello to our listeners. My name is Elizabeth E. Riez, and I am very much looking forward to and honored to be having a conversation with Marka Cassidy. Uh, Marka is a licensed marriage and family therapist in California, Oregon, and Oklahoma, and is involved in some really amazing projects and research around decolonization of folks who have multiple marginalized identities, and specifically the use of different trauma therapies, including psychedelic healing, in order to really understand one's identity. Marka, thank you so much for joining us today. I'm so excited for this. Oh, thank you. I'm, I'm very happy to be here. Thank you for having me. So why don't you take a minute and tell our listeners about yourself, how you came to do this work, how you got into the research you're doing now. It's, it's such interesting work. Thank you again. Yeah. Oh, yes. Um, in the psychedelic world, I am trained through multidisciplinary association of psychedelic studies in MDMA-assisted psychotherapy for treatment-resistant PTSD. And I'm on a couple of research teams in Oregon, one at the VA hospital, um, and more actively at OHSU, the Oregon Health and Science University. We're doing a study in 2024, which we've we've begun in this last couple of years doing focus groups and all that for uh, working with PTSD-resistant MDMA therapy with folks who are in with gender diversity, so trans folks, people you know, across that spectrum of, of gender. So we call it gender diversity or transgender folks and very exciting work that we're, we're planning to do there. And the way I got into that work is having my own lived experience growing up in Oklahoma. I'm, I'm Osage. I'm enrolled Osage. Uh, my Osage name is Hue Duan. Uh, my great, great grandfather was a tribal council member in the late 1920s during what we called the reign of terror, which Martin Scorsese just made a movie about the actual story of our tribe in the 1920s here in Oklahoma. My great grandmother was one of the original Latis that you'll you know see depicted in that movie in the book by David Gran. And and so if people don't know about that history, um, the Osages were in a large area of land uh, you know originally and got pushed to a smaller reservation eventually in Oklahoma and nearly were nearly genocided completely. And that's my great grandmother and great great grandfather being some of those and their family, that extended family being part of that family. And I grew up on her land in Oklahoma, my great grandmother, and she helped raise me until I was 21. I was a, a mixed race, I'm native and, and other, other, you know, European ancestry, French and Irish. And so I grew up on the reservation. So in, I was born in 67. And you know, the DSM homosexuality was you know, a diagnosable disorder until I think it was 1973 that changed. Um, so, you know, I was seven when that changed. So I was still living within the oppression and trauma and, you know, colonization that came in the psychiatric world, as well as in the culture that I was growing up in, which was in conservatism and, and they call it the the buckle of the Bible Belt. <laughs> I mean, it's just like, woo. And so my tribe, you know, were forced into Christianity, as most of the tribes were, you know, they were forced into Christianity, and we lost most of our cultural ways, our, and nearly, damn near lost all our people, you know. So it's amazing that people were still alive. 
And now a lot of folks, and you know, when I was born, they were, you know, a lot of natives, they're, they're not forced into Christianity, they're choosing Christianity, they're, they're choosing fundamentalist Christianity. But a lot of that comes down through colonization and being forced originally into that way. So I was living in all that. And, you know, I was lucky that as a kid, they called me a tomboy, which was a very nice gender expression that fit for me. A lot of, you know, people assigned female at birth get called tomboy. So it doesn't mean that gender expression continues. But for me, you know, that was an acceptable way for me to to move in the world. And, you know, people called me that and I loved it. But when I went to college, I started realizing that I was gay. And the word queer at the time was highly derogatory. You know, now we have queer theory and queer queer departments, you know, in universities and stuff. It's awesome to take back of that word. But, you know, I grew up on a playground where we would throw the ball in the air and, you know, whoever caught the ball, everybody would mob them and tackle them. And we called, that game was called Smear the Queer. That was the level of vitriol and violence growing up. And also, you know, I was in a culture that if, and still am in Oklahoma and some around as we're facing this recent onslaught of backlash and legislation against queerness, you know, that queer people on any level, gay people, uh, queer people were seen as indoctrinators. And really, they're taught in, the, in a lot of the conservatives, conservative churches that queer people are by nature pedophiles. And this continues today, this the equating homosexuality with pedophilia, even though if we have, you know, a person perpetrating, an adult person perpetrating on a child of an opposite sex, we don't you know, that heterosexuality doesn't get blamed for that. But if a same-sex person does that immediately, we'd say, well, there's homosexuality. So I grew up in that horrifically then. And then in the 80s, going to college in the closet, very, you know, very frightened about my own coming out to myself. And as we, you know, folks who go through varying levels of coming out. Also, we were in the AIDS crisis. So here we are. Um, you know, I was trying to be a music major. Music was always something I loved, I still love. Eventually, when I came out, you know, I went from tomboy to butch lesbian, and now into trans. I'm a trans masculine non-binary person, two spirit. You know, we can talk a little bit more about that identity. Coming out as a butch lesbian in the '80s, wow, that did not go well with the adults around me who were colonized and fearful. It was very different than the professors that were teaching me radical lesbian feminists at you know, the University of Oklahoma, these guest lecturers who, who didn't last long, you know. But when I came out, I kind of came out with fear and kind of stood up to the people around me and it didn't go well. I ended up having to drop out of school, drop out of college, drop out of music study. You know, I'm going to take a deep breath as I'm talking about it because I still live with some of this trauma. And so I became basically homeless, home free for a little bit. Um, living with my queer friends who were in Oklahoma for all different reasons, usually on, they were college athletes, you know, or people who loved me and helped me to, to stay. You know, they started confronting me. They were worried that I was going to kill myself because I was, you know, exhibiting high risk behavior with substances and because I felt like I was an abomination and that I didn't belong on the planet. It was really painful, but I kept playing music. I had a guitar and I'd would cover Indigo Girls and Melissa Etheridge, you know, like Janis Joplin, those kinds of things. And eventually I found my way into the community, mostly in Oklahoma City, who were combating the AIDS crisis. And from that, I got inspired to go to nursing school to serve my community. We had just incredible amounts of, you know, loss in our community. So I graduated from OU Nursing School in 1992. But that was, you know, previous to that, I was pretty self-destructive. I had a 
I had an experience one night where I was near, you know, I was very suicidal and I had a lightning strike the house that I was standing next to and knock me out into the lawn. I landed on my back and I heard this voice say to me, stop killing yourself. You're here for a reason. And I believe that was a visitation from lightning spirit or Wakanda, we call the great mystery in Osage. I believe that my ancestors and transcestors and guides came through to help me as well, because they're always here for me. And from that point, I went to nursing school. Yeah, so it took me a long time to recover, but eventually I got into therapy, EMDR therapy being what helped me a lot. And I'll say one more part about what brought me to this work. In 1995, I was working as emergency room nurse, a trauma nurse, and I decided I didn't really want to do trauma anymore. And so I um, decided to do home health care. And I was doing a home health care visit in 1995 in downtown Oklahoma City when the Murrah building was bombed. So I went to the nearby hospital to volunteer and a police car pulled up and I ended up in the police car and the the, the police officer took me right to the building, which was still on fire. And I was literally at the building as a first responder. Having all that background as an emergency room nurse and trauma nurse really helped me. But I came through that by 1996. I was quite ill with PTSD, queer trauma, first responder trauma. And this is when I launched out and I moved to Boulder, Colorado. And I stopped being a nurse for a little while. And I started playing more music and writing songs, including my first songs were about the trauma I had lived through, I was expressing it. And I got in with a really amazing group of musicians there. The whole, you know, Boulder was this, you know, Naropa universities there, many healers and teachers from around the world, the consciousness community, um, a lot of great artists there. And I started playing music in the, in the, in the different venues there in the community and also entered into some of the psychedelic healing that helped me so much. And so over the years, I played a lot of music. I did um, psychedelic healing, and I did EMDR therapy. I was taking, you know, receiving EMDR therapy, and uh, eventually moved to California to play music. Um, was going on tours with different folks, and I ended up deepening into the healing communities there, um, including 15 years with an ayahuasca community with an Ecuadorian-based uh, uh, shaman, you know, long lineage who would come and or train folks who I worked with there. And I started noticing similarities between EMDR therapy and this, you know, ayahuasca or plant spirit medicine. And so that really fascinated me. And so I started working, I eventually also started studying nonviolent communication because I was working as a nurse again in some kind of, you know, burnout work, kind of difficult situations. And I studied NVC. I kind of naturally like to talk to people. I'm glib also. <laughs> I like to tell stories and I like to hear stories. And so I eventually went and got my degree in counseling. And just as that was, you know, I was coming through my 3000 internship hours in California, working at Native American Health Center in San Francisco. And as a crisis counselor in Alameda County, we started having maps, you know, really started working more with the FDA and the DEA to bring forth this great research that's still been going on since the 80s with psychedelics. And now we're very close to legalization. You know, we've got decriminalization. We've got psilocybin going in Oregon. We've got, you know, um, what's looking like MDMA is going to legalize. We've got, you know, ketamine that's already legalized around the country. And so I started um, coming out <laughs> on multiple levels as a clinician, as a person who worked in plant spirit medicine, as a native, you know, clinician. Um, and now I get to blend all these wor worlds 
And then I end up on these fabulous podcasts talking to people like you, <laughs> like, you know, like what is going on in all these different worlds, you know, around identity, queer identity, native identity, um, healthy use of therapeutic use of psychedelics and plant spirit medicines and decolonizing sexuality and gender. We can talk more about that. It's kind of the mission that I'm on right now with all of that. Yeah. Thank you. Um, I think understanding your relationship to these different facets and then how they come together, I think is helpful. And in our prior conversation before we started recording, you were talking about how the research when we're looking at psychedelic assisted therapy Mm -hmm. I mean, all research tends to be based on a pretty specific group of folk that may not translate to the needs and um, the specifics of other people. Can you speak a little bit more about that and what what you're seeing in the indigenous communities and also in the queer community or, or I mean, I, I'm going mm -hmm. to broaden that saying marginalized communities in general. Yeah, exactly. Use of psychedelic assisted therapy and, and why that's so unique for this particular group when we're not just looking at the standard straight um, cis person. Yeah, well, first of all, I'll say I have a lot of respect for MAPS and the research community that's kept this, um, you know, MDMA and these types of things, LSD, of course, and then MDMA. MDA was being used in the 80s quite well for couples counseling, you know, to bring empathy for folks. And and so when that all got shut down, Rick Doblin, who started MAPS, he was, you know, he he has been on a mission ever since the 1980s when the, F, when the DEA declared MDMA a Schedule One drug. It was heartbreaking. So for him to keep the vision and keep this alive and, keep, and the universities that have you know boldly gone into keeping this alive to where we are at this point, where we can even have this conversation about making sure that we're having better access of psychedelic and psychedelic therapy um, to marginalized communities, you know, full respect there. However, Within that research, we do have issues of that most of our researchers are white, straight, cis people, and most of the research participants are white, white straight, cis people. Um, of course, uh, you know, so um, a lot of us, you know, Black, Indigenous people of color and queer people have, you know, shined the light on that. MAPS has responded, they, you know, um, all along the way, while also protecting the forward motion in the research that was already taking place. You know, the, the fear there was like, if we start digging in and making big changes here around marginalized communities and access, we might lose our forward momentum with the FDA and the DA. So we've been all navigating that together the last few years. And, you know, we're having a lot more conversations about it. One of the things more recently that I and, and my partner, um, Catherine, Dr. Catherine Costello and Alex Bessler, Bessler is an amazing um, psychotherapist and psychedelic, we're queer psychotherapists. And Shakruna is a... Chakruna is a online um, organization that works with BIPOC folks and, you know, kind of keeping the eye on these types of topics for Indigenous people, BIPOC folks, queer folks. So within that world, um, they we, we put together a book called Queering Psychedelics. They have a conference called Queering Psychedelics, Chakruna does. And some of the things we've been pointing out lately, also based on my own personal healing, um, is around one of the research measures is the um, mystical, uh, we call it the mystical experience questionnaire. And, and that is like, how do we measure if a person has had a positive therapeutic experience with psychedelics? One of the ways is if they have had a mystical experience of oneness or awe or something bigger than themselves. And this is 
really great. I studied Vedanta deeply for for three years. I I am a oneness. I love Bob Marley. One love, you know. I mean, I'm really into. Let me get the how oneness is so important in being able to cr- across identity find commonality and healing in all in all human relationships, right? However, if that's what we're measuring for, um, there, there's problems in that, in that maybe, maybe for white cis straight people, it would be better for white straight cis people to have more of a understanding of others through oneness. And, and, you know, but for, for those of us who have had queer trauma, trauma around being black, indigenous people of color, um, we have been putting forth, we think it's important and it's, anecdotal that people actually heal their into their identity they deepen into, into their identity when they sometimes when they take part in psychedelics when they do psychedelic healing when they do you know crossover into emdr healing and these types of things um it's not about being anti-oneness we want all that but um what if we were putting forth more of a space and environment in which for people to deepen in such as i did you know, I, as a nurse, I was really hiding behind being a nurse to um, be safe in the world, to have something for people to point at other than my queerness and my nativeness and my mixed race and my gender queerness. Um, and, you know, I was really overcompensating for, my, for all of my identities by saying, I'm, I'm a nurse who saves lives and that gives me a self-esteem and worth on the planet. Not a great reason to be an ER nurse. I mean, it worked. I did great work. But, you know, even at the University of Oklahoma, when I was in nursing school, I was still in the closet. And we had a lecturer in human sexuality who stated into the room in a lecture, all lesbians are lesbians because they have bad father figures, period, the end. This was a psychiatric nurse specialist who was brought in as a guest. I sat there in 1992 in Oklahoma at this reputable university uh, I can literally feel the trauma coursing through my body right now as I talk about it. That harmed me and my identity. And I was young and I didn't, I was 23. I didn't really know what to do, <laughs> you know? So I just sat there and took it. And now the consciousness community, the um, ayahuasca, you know, healers that I've worked with, um, EMDR therapists, other colleagues, community members have helped me. And each step along the way, as I've done my healing, I've deepened more and more into my identity as a queer person, as a trans masculine person, non-binary, into my pronouns, into, you know, and I'll say this, gender diversity is nothing new. We have a word in Osage, and the word is mechuge. And mechuge means a man who is guided by the moon, rather than a man guided by the sun, the masculine. This is a man guided by the moon, the feminine. We have words, you know, we know that upon first contact with Europeans, over 130 tribes in what is now the United States, upon first contact with Europeans had gender diverse people that were written about by the Europeans in a derogatory manner. But these people were living in their cultures, in their tribes as um, honorable, regular people. In fact, we had gender spectrum we can look at through history. There were not, we were not in a binary in tribal societies. And... Uh, we're uncovering that history now. We, you know, that derogatory language that the Europeans used was used in academic and in native spaces for a long time. But in 19, the 1990s, a group of clinicians and, well, uh, thinkers, community members got together in Canada and, and decided that we would coin the word two-spirit as a positive word 
So we stopped using that derogatory language to prove that we existed. We brought two-spirit into, a, it's an umbrella term for Native American people, people with Native American heritage who are under the LGBTQ umbrella. So I'll just say if you're not, if you don't have Native heritage, you cannot use that term. You are appropriating that term if you use that. So people get excited about that term, but you know, that's a native, that's a native term made for native people. Um, and so, yeah, deepening into that identity, um, that's important. And again, with all respect to our white researchers, our white cis researchers and our white cis, you know, participants, there's more, there's more to the picture here that's important around healing. There's so much in what you just said, and I <laughs> yeah. want to unpack parts of it. So thinking about MAPS, so again, MAPS being multi Multidisciplinary Association for Psychedelic Studies. Yeah. As you and I are having this conversation, this is actually one of the first times that Clearly Clinical has had this conversation, not um, not because we haven't wanted to, um, but but for many clinicians, this wasn't at all discussed, introduced in our educational programs as something that was even like feasible for clinicians to be involved in. Can you give the psychedelic assisted 101, if you will, about like what, what does that look like in terms of treatment? And then let's talk about like really the benefits of psychedelic assisted work for folks who have marginalized identities, particularly multiple marginalized identities, and why there's this really specific benefit here that you're building out. Sure. Yeah. And I'll say, so back to that first part. Yeah. You know, we had, we have in our training and some of our, in our internships, this, you know, this conjuring of a non-ordinary state of consciousness in order to get us out of, you know, the way we usually organize what we call the default mode network in the psychedelic world, the ego, the way we go, hey, this shit, uh, this stuff happened to me in the past. <laughs> and uh, now I'm worried about the future. And that's, that's how I run the that's how I run my life, right? And that and if we have anxiety and depression and things in that that help us, you know, shut us down, we got to get to that, right? That's what we're looking at is across the board as therapists a lot of the time. Um, so we do that in other ways through non-ordinary states of consciousness, you know, and in tribal societies, you know, I have teachers, Dr. Dolores Bigfoot at Indian Country Child Trauma Center trained me in trauma-focused CBT with Native American cultural enhancement to work with Native families. Where we bring in sage, we burn sage, we, we, play, we do drumming, we bring in eagle feather, we do, you know, dance and trance this type, because that's how people have always lived on this planet as, in this human existence, especially those earth-based spiritualists who are out in the elements and hunting, right? That's traumatic. We lost, you know, there's loss there. So we had to like, you know, warriorship, going out in warriorship. When people come back to the village, you got to smudge them off and drum and sing the right songs and have them come back into their identity to come into the village. So that's nothing new, non-ordinary states of consciousness. And we also in tribal societies have entheogens, plant spirit medicines who've always been there helping to bring us into a non-ordinary state of consciousness and, you know, into the mystical way of, you know, receiving guide energies, guides, you know, other perspectives. And so um, I'll say that's nothing new, but yeah, you're right. In, in psychotherapy training, we don't talk a lot about entheogens, psychedelics, right? We haven't been, I think it's time now, <laughs> but, you know, so coming out of that and into this training mm, with MAPS, so MAPS is 
fabulous organization and they've they've done all the they are the ones who are holding the capacity with the d and the fda to do these trainings um and you know we could talk about i i believe they're doing it in an ethical manner as best they can and i have a lot of respect for maps so the training that i went through the pro it's a protocol and this is common in the research this is not just we're going to write a prescription and give you mdma you know it is a protocol right now that we're following and i think this is true i don't you i don't treat people with ketamine but i know there's you know different people are using ketamine in different ways now therapeutic use but right now the protocol 101 that i like to follow it's it's about i think it's a 15 session protocol so you have like two prep prep sessions with people then you have one eight hour dosing session and then you have two integration sessions another dosing session eight hours two more integration sessions, a third dosing session, and then I think two or three post-dosing sessions. So we're talking over months, several months. Right now it's with two clinicians. Um, this, is, this, is how, this is how MAPS is training folks and this is how it's being used in the research. For a long time they were using um, the, since there had to be two clinicians, um, they made it necessary that it was a binary that it'd be a man and a, a man clinician and a female clinician and those of us who are gender diverse started pushing back on that way before me people started pushing back on that so that's no longer a requirement and we could go into like why they did that and you know how they were trying what they were trying to do there but we've, we've broken out of that um and so you know as you can see that protocol is takes it takes it's more you know there's a lot of safety measures put into it there's a lot of preparation and integration and from that you know you know, people are going to probably, clinicians are going to be free at some point to create their own therapeutic modalities. Um, you know, we're going to, we're going to, the FDA and the DA are going to guide all this when it initially comes out. But just as ketamine, ketamine has come into legalization and people are treating people with it lots of different ways. But, you know, at this point, as a clinician in my private practice, Obviously, I cannot dose people because that's a Schedule One MDMA is a Schedule One drug still. Um, psilocybin is legalized in Oregon under certain under certain stipulations, but for the most part, we have decriminalization. But we can't dose people as clinicians right now unless we're in a research study or we're doing ketamine. So, but what you can do as a clinician is talk to people about harm reduction, and you can also talk to them. You know, I always say to clients, I cannot condone Schedule One drug use. However, if you're going to choose to use psychedelics, we can certainly talk about harm reduction, set and setting, you know, how you might keep that safer, you know, testing for fentanyl, you know, fentanyl test strips, these kinds of things. Um, also, uh, we can talk about integration. Like if you have had a psychedelic journey, I can absolutely legally talk to you about your journey and what you found there and what you saw, you know, and bring that in. I suggest that clinicians do a little bit of training on that or, you know, there's integration specialists you can talk to about how to, how to do it. Cons consult more than just, you know, do that. But you can do that as a clinician. That's pretty amazing that we can blend these worlds right now. I never thought I would be sitting here talking to you about being a clinician and somebody who uses, you know, utilizes psychedelics. Um, uh, you know, or even also talking about being an artist, because from all this identity, I've deepened into my artistry and expressing all these themes in music. And, you know, I guess you could say I do more therapeutic use of self than, you know, what maybe we're taught in school. But I also, I'll, you know, have to keep that focus on that, that that's therapeutic for my clients, right? 
But um, yeah, so there's a little bit about maps and where we're at. And yes, I don't know if we got into the second part of that question, but access. Thank you. I think because, you know, even just looking at my education, for example, I mean, I remember at one point the conversation about somatic work coming up and the professor in my program saying like, we don't touch clients. If you're ever going to touch a client, like then you're not doing therapy. And we are now in a generation in the healing arts that we're expanding beyond this chaise lounge where you can't see the clinician and they tell you what you need to do differently. <laughs> like we're, we're expanding beyond this idea of what is therapeutic. And it is based in non-puritanical, non-colonial origins that we're expanding beyond like basically like the American ideal of what is therapy, what is healing. And now pulling from so many different cultures and going, wait a minute, these have been around for millennia. <laughs> and, and we've only invented this thing called therapy within this certain amount of time. I think it's, I think it goes without saying, but it's about darn time um, that we expand beyond this definition. But also I appreciate what you said, which is understanding the importance of, of training in it, of consultation in it to make sure that if we're going to expand in these different varieties of healing that include somatic work or psychedelic work or use of animals in healing, for example, or outdoor therapy, all these different ideas, making sure that we're doing so appropriately and that we're skilled and experienced enough to provide a container to support somebody in their healing while we're doing that. Yeah. And I'll say this, I understand those guidelines on touch and appropriateness, you know, and we, <laughs> But we're also, that is, those laws and rules and all the tests we take and the licensing exams where, you know, a third of the questions talk about not touching your clients or don't, you know, do not have sex with your clients, right? You know, we get it, right? It's hammered into us. We get tested on it. We have to do CEs on it. We have to do, you know, it's always there. Why? Because those are the weakest links in our field. Yes, there are people who are inappropriate that get through and cause harm. So I get it including in the psychedelic world. We have a clinician who was in research in Canada. He and his wife were a research team. He went beyond, he, you know, had sex with his, his, his client who he had been treating with MDMA in research. Horrific in our field. Hor I mean, so we have to have measures in place, conversations. You know, I really want more consultation where people can talk about their, you know, anything that comes up for them in being a clinician, including attraction or, you know, sexual energy or whatever, especially in the psychedelic world, we have to be able to talk about it. Right. So, um, yeah, that is a large topic within the field and within the psychedelic field in general. So, however, I have had great supervisors and clinicians and consults and colleagues encouraging me that if I am in my own self-reflection, I am in therapy, I'm in coaching, I'm in consultation, that yes, it's absolutely okay to utilize touch in a therapeutic manner. And yes, we talk about that in psychedelic training. And it goes something like this in your preparations sessions. You know, you say to the client, you know, let's talk about what you'll need and kind of how we create an environment and you have a playlist and you maybe will lay down on a futon and we have like eye 
mask if you want that. You can go internal more, or you can come out, you can make contact with one of the two therapists, right? You know, I do think we still have the two therapists in the room, the research to kind of keep it, maybe, maybe that's a safety measure. I don't know. We're still wondering why, why do we need two clinicians, you know? At some point, we won't have that any longer because that's not sustainable, you know, for that's, you know, on a financial level, um, uh, which is a whole nother topic around accessibility. But um, yeah, that we have to prepare. We have to say, if you want to, you know, if you would want some touch during a session, let's talk about that because sometimes people do. I might say to you, like, would you like me to hold your hand? Or if you want me to hold your hand, you can hold your hand out. If you can't, you don't want to speak, you know, you're deep in the music or into, you know, your process with psychedelic. What would your signal be to me that you want to hold my hand? Maybe you wave at me a little bit and hold your hand out and I will hold your hand. But if at any point that doesn't feel okay, let me know. You know, that has deepened into some clinician spaces where the person is doing attachment healing and they want to be literally held. And that is therapeutic and healthy, but we have to be checking ourselves on that always, of course, right? This is, I mean, this topic, we could talk about definitely for an hour, but touch, yeah, somatic work. To that end, talk to me about that benefit that you see. Why, why you're working with Oregon Health and Science University and said, here's what we need to do and here's what we need to understand in the research. You talked about this idea of oneness. Can you expand on that and the benefit of understanding oneself, particularly for folks who are not the Times New Roman font uh, of our culture? So I had an experience, I'll just say this, in my community, when I was doing a lot of healing work through EMDR and EMDR settings, where I would, re, I would go in and you know, re-experience trauma and bring over adaptive information through tapping and um, what we do with EMDR resourcing, Calm. Now, now we have wonderful Laura Parnell's uh, attachment-focused EMDR, where we do resourcing around calm, nurturance, protection, wisdom, kind of that we're, we're, we're resourcing a secure attachment and bringing that information over to old memories and formative year wounding for complex trauma in childhood, right? I love that work. I've done that where I've received that work. I do that work with people. I just love it. But ayahuasca or it's sometimes plant, you know, community-based, uh, you know, um, with proper leadership, set and setting does similar. It brings people into the shadow. You bring ayahuasca is a form of plant spirit medicine that brings often for me and others, this isn't true for everyone, but brings out the shadow work, the wounding, the formative year wounding, the trauma, and it shines the light on it, similar to EMDR, it's a re-experiencing, and then comes more insight, um, self-compassion, um, of course, in those settings, we have singing, the singing, those old, the old, the songs are so important. Um, and the energies and limpieza is a, is a type of cleansing that a shaman will do with someone who during a, during a ceremony to cleanse the energies from the body, these types of things. And so I myself had a very deep experience of this um, on a few levels, but I'll just say this one. So I had a, you know, this grandfather shaman came from Ecuador, long lineage, came to be with us in California, and he brought me forth to do this type of healing. And he said to me, after doing energetic healing with me, I have worked, I have seen some wounding in your DNA and your tribal people. And I'm encouraging you that through this cleansing and healing, 
that you, I would encourage you to be more yourself, to be deeper, to express more of your authenticity of who you are, and to do that with your tribal people. I'm in California at the time. I'm far, far from Oklahoma. And I liked being far from Oklahoma. I would come visit, but you know, this is the place where I was heavily wounded. So, you know, I didn't quite know, but I'll say this. He didn't say to me, um, we're all one. So it's all fine. You are one with creator. So you are healed. Just be one with creator and give up your identity. Hell no. He said, be yourself because it will be good for you and it will be good for your people. So I started moving in that way in my world. I stood up to our ceremonial dances and I danced, you know, it was short hair and, you know, I ended up singing. I, I made an album of music that was, uh, uh, um, I'll say this, we, haven't, we have a lot of Osages in California because of displacement through the 1920s and the 1950s, long history there, you know, assimilation genocide, pushing people out to the coast. So if you, if you win the votes in California for political office in Oklahoma as an Osage, you win the election. So we have all these political people and all these cultural people who come out to California and into the, where I was living. And I started going to those gatherings. I had never been to those gatherings. And those people all knew my grandfather, who was an Osage congressman. And I started going to those events and talking about, I worked at Native American Health Center and we provide free counseling to natives. And I met all the, I met our chief, I met all our Congress people and I started singing songs at those gatherings. And eventually I would come home and I would go back to these gatherings, you know, here in Oklahoma and people would know me. And it was, and eventually I got asked to sing at the inauguration of our chief in Congress about half a mile from where I grew up. And I wore a traditional man's ribbon shirt with my hair very short and with some of the more progressive Osage Congress people who asked me to do that, some of the more conservative people were not happy. They were like, who's this gay California Osage who's singing at the inauguration, you know? But I did what that healer told me to do. And every step of the way, it's been vulnerable. But every step of the way, my life has gotten better and better as I've deepened into being two-spirit, being non-binary, transmasculine, gender diverse they, them pronouns, not easy to come out with they, them pronouns these days. People go, that's a fad. That's, you know, what, what is this thing we are forcing us to do? And it's like, no, gender diversity is very old. I am mchuge. I am this thing. These words, nadle, in the Diné people, we have words for gender diverse people that are still alive in tribal societies pre-colonization. They, them is just a new way of expressing it, right? It's just, we're just getting creative all the time and evolving in how we talk about it. But we as humans have had this gender diversity forever. That's colonization that has, and boarding school and all this, you know, that's wiped that clean along with our other cultural ways of being that are, so language is coming back. We're in a land back movement. We're in culture, you know, Standing Rock brought great visibility to natives. We are in a movement right now and including in decolonization of, of, of gender and sexuality. So. As I deepen more and more and I talk more and more, I end up again on, you know, talking to cool people like you. People want to know about this because they get it. They know what I'm talking about from my great teachers and healers and therapists and shamans and communities and consciousness communities I've deepened into. Here I am living back a half, you know, a couple miles from my reservation in Tulsa as a transmasculine, non-binary, two-spirit therapist. Who go, I go to the Trans March here and speak. I have, you know, a two-spirit festival happening in October backed by the University of Tulsa. Um, 
you know, we we are we are deepening our visibility as queer people as we're also facing legislation. We have doctors leaving the state. We have trans people leaving the state because we are one of the first states to, you know, uh, criminalize uh, healthcare for trans people. But I'm here in my identity, representing. I'm more resourced. You know, when I was here before and I left in '97. I had seen so much death and carnage and I had been gay bashed, including at my own university. So I left, but I'm back and I'm doing healing in this identity, in the very place where I was wounded and happy to be here. Vulnerable. I have to, you know, take care of myself a lot, but this is why I show up and tell this story because I've had such amazing healing in all those different communities. So all I can say is we've got to make room However, you know, that's another topic. How do we make room? It's a, that's a big topic, but we've, we've got to around deepening it into identity. You know, Chakruna did a study. MAPS came out with a statement of solidarity with Black, Life, Black Lives Matter. And we noticed on social media a massive level of vitriol when they posted that from people in the psychedelic community. And there's an there's a article on it I can, I can link to you. It's um, hate and social media in psychedelic communities. Again, you're... There's so many, so many rabbits <laughs> that I want to follow down different holes and my brain is having trouble figuring out like which rabbit. Yeah. As you're talking about holding these marginalized identities and being on the edge, being separate from whatever the culture at large has checkboxed, if you will, I can hear there where you're talking about the trauma and the need for self to build protective walls around one's identity in order to navigate. I mean, you talked about it as a nurse of like, I went into medicine, I could hold up this thing and say, see, here's, here's how I'm valuable. Here's how I'm contributing. Ignore the rest. Um, when you're looking at the trauma marginalized people may experience and then layering on the psychedelic work, is it the breaking down of those walls? in this kind of safe contained environment therapeutically, is that the benefit that you're seeing for queer folk? Can you expand on that? Yeah, that's a great question. No, I mean, I think we're always gonna need protection. You know, again, back to that idea of we are all one. Yes, great. I love string theory. I love Vedanta. I love Eastern, you know, Tatwamasi, we are all, you are that, we are all God. And the word, uh, the word for Osage for God is uh, Wakanda, and that means the great mystery. It is not gendered. It's the great mystery, right? But we live in this ex existence it, within these constructs of race and gender and all these things. That's all made up, right? People go, it's all made up, or we're just all one. Can't we just get over it? But we live, there are actual consequences to race and gender constructs, social constructs. People are discriminated against. They're suffering. You know, they're... Um, so... For the people who live through that, from I who live through that type of blatant discrimination, physical, literal gay, being gay bashed in a parking lot outside a gay bar by five white men who were sitting on my car and pushed me around. And, you know, for somebody who's lived through something like that, yeah, I have walls. I have protection, as Laura Parnell talks about, to have to be secure on this planet, on this in this existence, I have to have a feeling of protection. So it's not necessarily about breaking down the walls of protection, but within a therapeutic environment, if we can create a space in which 
we can celebrate, you know, those very identities that cause discrimination. You know, we, we have internalized homophobia, internalized transphobia, internalized racism. Why? Because the very thing that we are out in the world that causes people to say things like, you know, a extended family member in law of mine knew that I was going to be at a family gathering when I was in my 20s. And there was a baby there. And she said, Mark, I can't hold the baby. And that got back to me. This is somebody I'd known my whole life. Here I'm an adult and I can't hold the baby now because I, being a homosexual, equate with a pedophile in her church, in her ideology, right? I need protection from that for the rest of my life, right? However, if there's an environment, a community, a therapeutic trust, a place where I can come forth with, you know, to feel more of who I am, express more of who I am and safely. Even we've even had queer circles where we get together and we just move all together as queer people, just movement, ecstatic dance, these types of things where we get together and we just get to authentically move. That empowers, I think it, it brings vitality, all the energy we go in into protection. That's an energy store. That's our energy. So, it, you know, it brings vitality. It brings, um, you know, secure attachment in that babies, they got to look back and make that eye contact. And then they turn around and they crawl further out to explore their environment because they look back and they know that they've got their back. And over here is danger. Over here, crawling further out into the corners to try the new toys. That's dangerous. Intuitively, we know that. Innately, we know that as little ones. So we got to look back, make that eye contact. And then babies turn around and they crawl further out because they've got that primary caregiver nervous system regulation calm that allows us to go adventuring with a little more danger, you know, with, and we, because we know we can go back running over there if something happens out there in the bad world, right? So there's some level of that around secure attachment, when I myself know who I am, but also it goes bigger for me, who my guides are, who my ancestors are. This is, this is where we can get very metaphysical, mystical. I have guides. I have lightning. The lightning came and spoke to me. Wakanda, the mystery, that, that comes through me and guides me. And, you know, also I have my community. I have my safety plans. I know who I can call. I know where I can go. I know who to share my identity with, you know, like my pronouns right now. I get misgendered a lot and I choose from moment to moment who I correct around my pronouns and who I don't. And I have the right to do that. Some people who feel it's kind of like coming out in the 80s. We had a lot of people through the AIDS crisis saying, everybody's got to come out. This is the only way we're going to turn this around. And then we watched, you know, my favorites, like the Indigo Girls came out, Melissa Etheridge came out, Katie Lang came out, you know, and so brave people really, you know, Ellen DeGeneres, my goodness, lost her show, lost her, you know, and then had the turnaround. But, you know, folks who, um, we have, you know, folks who didn't have like Marsha P. Johnson at Stonewall who didn't have the luxury of coming out. She was already out, right? You know, um, those who we, the shoulders we stand on who maybe don't, can't pass as white and straight and sit all the thing, right? You know, trans, the, the black indigenous trans women of our movement of Stonewall and beyond, right? We, oh my goodness, you know, um, so, but more of us in the eighties came out and it was a big deal, but, you know, I still feel like. Um, coming out is powerful and empowering to our community, but that is a personal choice. Just like transness or any other identity marker around, you know, it's more around gender diversity now because um, we have same-sex marriage, we've got it, you know, but we, that's not, you know, we still have communities where people are not safe who are cisgendered and gay. Cisgender gay people are, you know, um, 
but trans folks especially, right? You know, so any identity that's marginalized, if we can deepen into that while maintaining our level of, you know, relative protection in our existence, I think it's, it empowers us. I know it empowers, it empowers me. So the invitation for a client going through this work is the opportunity to get to know the parts of themselves that have been separate from for survival, for that protection that you talk about. You mentioned how MAPS as an organization is trying to be really deliberate with inclusivity. What does that mean for the practitioners? Well, for on the MAPS level, they have um, <clears throat> their diversity, equity, inclusion um, part. I think they call it JEDI, though. It's like justice, equality. I love MAPS because, of course, it would be like the JEDIs, right? <laughs> <laughs> justice, equity, diversity, and inclusion, I think, you know. <laughs> um, so they've got internal an internal department now that's looking at, you know, who's on the research studies and who's being trained and... Uh, you know, I, by, by being on their advisory council, they, they brought me in as a native queer clinician and paid for my training. You know, they, um, we're, they're talking about access when this legalized, how are we going to, you know, how's this going to go? Pharmaceutical companies are going to, you know, they right now hold, we're go are going to hold the, um, whatever it's called when you hold the right to, for the drug to dispense it. MAPS has the hold on that. No, 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 it's like no, um, pharmaceutical company has that yet. And the money they make from that's going to go back into research. They're so cool. I mean, they just do really. They have problem. They have problematic stuff, but they when you call it out, they 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 work really hard to look at it and try to evolve. Um, that's on a larger level when we're talking about policy and all these kinds of things. There's going to be problems for access, but as a clinician, maybe you know, if we're talking about a a clinician who's actually doing this type of work, yeah, what does it mean? Well, I mean, I think. A, number one, it's really important that each individual who's in front of you, you be open to their worldview first. What are they coming in with? What's their trauma? How do you talk about race and queerness? Well, it helps if you have a clinician across from the people who have some type of identity that the person can identify with. But if you're cis and white and straight, does that mean you can't work with a trans, BIPOC, you know, queer person? No, but you sure need some consultation and training. Um, you know, there are probably white straight cis clinicians who can do, let's just say, on you know, scale of zero to 10, more of a 10 therapeutic work than maybe is what some BIPOC clinicians could do. I'm not saying, you know, I'm not saying like we all, we all need consultation. We all need a deeper understanding of how do we work with difference? How do we work with diversity? How do we work with, you know, the trauma of being a certain identity marker within a home, you know, homosexual within a homophobic society, transphobic within, with you know, transsexual, transgender within a transphobic society. How how do we work with that? Again, this is a whole nother issue, but it's just um, you know, self-reflection and meeting that person where they're at. You know, there's a protocol on that. They talk about the inner healer. The protocol for MAPS for MDMA healing is to allow that person's inner healer to come forth. So this takes a lot of skill in you know, the foundation for me is nonviolent communication. I got deep training in nonviolent communication in the Bay Area, not just reading the book, nonviolent, you know, it's deep needs-based, empathy-based listening by, I did two leadership trainings where we went a week at a time for four weeks out of the year into the woods in Northern California and practiced radical honesty with empathy 
through that modality. And that has set up for me a foundation of how to sit with any person with empathy, guessing what needs they're trying to meet by their actions or by their self-hatred or by those protect hyper protectors that come in. I'm just in curiosity all the time. I'm just opening, asking open-ended questions of curiosity all the time. I don't, even if I'm, you know, with a trans BIPOC client, I don't exert my trans BIPOC identity onto theirs. I'm just looking for where these medicines, you know, MDMA especially works with the amygdala. It brings the fear factor down and it brings more of ability to access trauma memories or the material that is traumatic. You know, when you come into a therapeutic space and try and shine the light on that stuff, people shut down. They it's hard to access that stuff for good reason. It's protected. MDMA helps that. MDMA doesn't heal the trauma. It allows the person to come forth in a therapeutic setting with more self-love, self-compassion, compassion for what happened. And a deeper, you know, if you've had a, if you have had a trauma from being, um, you know, gay, and then you hate that you're gay, <laughs> or you feel fearful of people of coming out as gay, and you're holding that, and then it brings anxiety to you, we're going to, you know, hopefully bring forth some compassion for self, love of, love of your gayness, <laughs> right here in this, in this setting. How would you move your gayness? How would you express your gayness in a world where mechuge, you know, gender diverse people are loved and honored and seen as healers and beautiful people, which is true of most tribal societies around the world, especially including ones today. There are gatekeeper or gender diverse people in tribal societies. You know, so Bamfu Somei was a Dagara tribe from Africa, a teacher of mine who taught grief ritual in the United States. And she came to me at one point and said, you know, in my tribe, gender diverse people, gay people, gender diverse people are on the edge of the, they have special roles. They're the gatekeepers. They're like the, they're like the marriage therapists for the straight people. They look in because they can analyze and see they have a special ability to see what's going on. And then people come to them for counsel. And she's like, and I think you're one of those, I think you might be one of those if you're in my tribe. That was very validating coming from a tribe where we have such colonization and through, you know, forced conservatism in order to stay alive, you had to do what you had to do from the Europeans that came and forced that on, on, but that was not true in the Dagara tribe. So, so Bamfu was able to come forth and call that out in me you know, that I not only is it okay that I love myself as gay, hey, guess what, there might even be some qualities here on a spiritual level on a level around identity that maybe these are we are special in our ability to hear and see and help and provide and even be shot in some societies, they're shaman, you know, this type of thing. So I don't know if that's, you know, back to the clinical room. Yeah, whatever comes forth, right? What you're saying, I mean, as you've already said, like there's so many different conversations here and we're just scratching the surface on a number of really deep concepts. Even the idea, I think for so many clinicians of sitting with somebody while they are quote unquote under the influence, just that is, you know, for some folks is really difficult to get your minds around. Um, and that leads me to my next question for people who are listening going, wow, like I want to learn more about this and I want to understand, I guess, really starting with what what does it mean to decolonize? How do I decolonize my work as a clinician? How do I invite in this element of psychedelic assisted therapy 
How do people do that, Marco? Where do they start? <laughs> yeah, great, great question. I mean, you know, and that word decolonization is being thrown around a lot right now. And I really, I like, I love it. You know, what does it mean? You know, it can mean a lot of different things, but um, deepening, you know, okay. So one place I can point you at is like Chakruna. So Chakruna is this amazing organization that brings in a lot of different, um, mar- you know, f- clinicians who are from marginalized communities who've done their own healing work or folks who are allies and deeply want to know more, they can go to Chakruna. There's all sorts of talks, articles around Black, Indigenous people of color, how to work with, you know, with Black, Indigenous people of color. Yep. Will you spell that word out for folks who are listening? Yeah. Chakruna. I want to make sure I get it right. C-H-A-C- Wait, let me spell it again. <laughs> C-H-A-C-R-U-N-A and it's Chakruna. Let me just pull it up here. Chakruna.net. Yeah. Um, they also have a, they have a annual gathering called the Queering Psychedelics. We have a, we have a, a book that I contributed to along with my partner, Catherine Costello, um, Queering Psychedelics. We have the book. You can go read, you know, and then anti-racism work, you know, since George Floyd's murder, we have tremendous amounts of opportunity. You can listen on a podcast, you can, you know, read books, you know, it's, the lists are there. Google it. Read. Meet, meet with other clinicians. Talk about this in your consultation groups, you know. International Psychotherapy Institute. So they, they have a training. I haven't, I don't, I haven't checked deeply into the training, but this is a, a, a this is an organization, example of an organization that is doing trainings outside of MAPS for integration work as a psychotherapist. So you're not dosing people, but you're learning how to talk to people about their psychedelic journeys. Cause I, I've lectured for them. So that's how I know they're in existence. I mean, I got MAPS trained. So, and I haven't, I have to say, I don't pay attention to a lot. I, when all this psychedelic stuff started coming in about five years ago in a big way, I was trying to keep up with everything that was going on. It's not possible anymore. And that's, in some ways problematic, in some ways really awesome, because that means we're getting closer to legalization. We're going to have the same issues in our field as we already have with clinicians who are not competent. Sometimes we have that in our field. That's going to happen. That's going to be true with psychedelics too. We got to be, as a person seeking help, you know, you got to be discerning. But there's a lot of us in this field who are fabulous people and educate ourselves and do a great job and who can do just fine within this, you know keeping it safe and informed and educated. And you just do the same thing you've been doing, consult, read. Marka, thank you. You've introduced so many concepts that I know I'm going to be thinking about and researching. So again, to restate what Marka just mentioned, there's a work around understanding decolonization and our own identities and how they impact other people around us and leaning into that. But also, if you're interested in this work, organizations like MAPS that Marka just mentioned, this idea of integration. And so even if you're not facilitating, how are you holding this as a clinician when folks are wanting to explore this and kind of creating an opening environment or an open environment in psychotherapy for that experience? Marka, for folks who are listening and want to learn more about you and about your work, how do they do that? Where do they go? Yeah, well, there's, you know, what you know i'm a clinician and all that but i'm also an artist and i'm i'm releasing an album that's themed in two-spirit um resilience based on all that i've talked about here today and i was backed by indian collective who's this amazing grantor to indigenous artists radical imagination grant as well as the osage nation foundation backed me in creating this and i've also made a music video um 
depicting religious trauma in, of a trans and in, in, in native person made it in Portland and in Oklahoma, and that's coming out in August. I'm really excited about that. So you can find about all that at markacassidy.com. That's my website around music and art and expression and performance art. And, you know, me as an artist, as a therapist coming out with, you know, this material, it's really exciting. And then as a clinician, I'm at cassidycounseling.com. Awesome. Thank you. Thank you again for joining us. Oh, you, thank you. You've brought up so many ideas. Again, so many rabbits I want to follow. And I'm sure yes. our listeners feel similarly. Thank you again for joining us and bringing not only um, this information, but your lens to deliver it. I really appreciate yeah, thanks for listening to my story. I know I know there's a lot here that maybe people will have a lot of questions, but you know, thanks for letting me come on and just you know, talk, talk some about my healing and, and, you know, to point people, you know, where, where they can go ask questions. It's okay to ask questions. Please do. The other thing I want to put out is for people is, is a hotline fireside project. So fireside project, that's a new hotline for people. If um, people are, have had a psychedelic experience that they're struggling with, or they're currently having a psychedelic, they're having a bad trip or a good trip or whatever, or they just want to do integration work, Fireside Project is a, is, a, is a fabulous hotline that people can call. And so you just Google it, Fireside Project. And I like to put that resource out as a crisis line. Thank Yay. You. I appreciate that. I'm sure <laughs> yeah. that's handy to have. Thank you so much, Marka. Yeah. You've just finished listening to another exclusive continuing ed podcast by Clearly Clinical. If you like what you just heard and you need continuing ed credits, please visit us at clearlyclinical.com to check out our one-year membership, where you'll have access to our growing library of continuing ed podcast courses. Clearly Clinical, where our goal is to help you learn, grow, and shine.